Hi, everyone. I'm happy to say that we are finally finished with Barboza. Phew, I really did not expect it to take up two episodes. Me either, and it left me tongue-tied last week. Well, there's definitely something draining about Barboza, but we aren't quite finished. I know, we need to give more information about the slang of Barboza, but that's more focused on the hitters than the victim this time around. Exactly, but we aren't entirely finished, you know. Keep rubbing it in. I know you have to remind me. Okay, today we'll be discussing the forever dapper Joseph J.R. Russo. In the 1960s, J.R. lived on Chestnut Street in Beacon Hill. My family had their store on Charles Street, and J.R. was a customer there. Dad's friend and sometimes lawyer, Freddie Salito, was a law student at Suffolk University back then, and he too lived on Beacon Hill. Over the years, Freddie was close to both Dad and Jr. Jr. would constantly warn Freddie not to get in the car with Dad because he would end up getting killed. Don't get in the car with that fucking guy. Freddie ignored the warnings and lived to tell the stories. Did Jr. like dislike Richie? No, it wasn't that, but he knew what Dad was up to. I will say that Jr. hated my Uncle Brendan. Well, I gather Jr. wasn't the only one. Endearing wasn't a word ever used to describe Bren. Do you want to start with JR's family background? Sure. We'll do our usual biography, some stories about JR, then bring in some of the goings on in the North End in the early 70s. It will tie in one of the slangs we touched on in our last Hit Parade episode also. As for JR's bio, I know that it won't be so clean cut since there's no documentation of his existence until 1950. Talk about a pain in the neck. Joseph Anthony J.R. Russo was allegedly born on May 5th, 1931 to Angelo Antonio Russo and Angelina Abadessa. Now, that being said, Laura and I have spent hours and turned over every possible stone, and J.R. does not appear in any official records until the 1950 census when he's found living with his mother, who was going by Anne, and his stepfather, Mario Carazza. The other thing I want to correct here for the record is that Bobby Carrazza is JR's stepbrother, not half-brother. Depending upon the source, we've seen him listed both ways. Bobby's mom died in 1944, and his father remarried JR's mom sometime after that. JR's first arrest was on February 15, 1951. Carmen Biancardi, JR, and Constantine Aquino robbed an East Boston woman at gunpoint in her apartment the month prior. His second arrest was in March of that year. The same trio was arrested for an attempted payroll robbery on Summer Street in South Boston. Less than a week after their arrest, each pleaded guilty with JR receiving five to seven years in state prison. By 1954, J.R. was back on the streets and managed to avoid arrest until August of 56, when he and Vincent DeCicio were arrested for armed robbery. The duo had held up a locksmith in the back bay for $800. A traffic cop apprehended them as they were hopping into a taxi on Mass Ave. Unlike most cases in Massachusetts back in those days, the judge ordered J.R. be remanded into custody on a parole violation for his 1951 armed robbery case. He and DeCicio were sentenced in December of that year. J.R. was given a four- to five-year Walpole sentence to run concurrently with the remainder of the balance of his 51 conviction that he was already serving. DeCicio was given two to three years in the Concord Reformatory. J.R. and DeCicio's relationship would continue for nearly another 20 years. On January 25, 1961, they were both shot outside of the Atlantic Cafeteria on Warren Street in Roxbury. J.R. was grazed under his left eye and DeCicio was hit in the right leg. No arrests were ever made, and with the body count as high as it was in the 1960s, it's difficult to say if J.R. and DeCicio were able to exact their revenge on their assailants. 
And speaking of the body count, on December 7th, 1966, 25-year-old Joseph Chico Amigo was shot and killed in his car, which was driven by Jimmy Kearns as they left Alfonso's Broken Hearts Club. Less than an hour earlier, they had both been at the El Morocco, which was owned by Larry Bioni. Supposedly, they had been looking for Larry in order to kill him. It was believed that they were seeking revenge for the slayings of Tosh Bratzos and Arthur DePrisco at the Nightlight Lounge the month before. Instead, they found one of Larry's cousins, who Chico proceeded to slap across the face, telling him, quote, this is for Larry. But another witness at the time claimed that Chico was begging, please straighten it out. It's my life. You've got to straighten it out. And it was Kearns who punched another man at the bar in the eye. Someone at the El Morocco called the cops and the two men left with Chico saying, we're leaving, we don't want any trouble. As they were leaving, they mentioned that they were heading to Alfonso's. The moment they walked out, a call was placed to Alfonso's, giving them a heads up. Nobody at Alfonso's gave them any trouble. The two men had a drink and went to leave. As they stepped out of the door, Guy Frizee gave a signal by tapping on the window. The two men got to their rented 1966 green sedan, and as they pulled away, J.R. opened fire with his favorite weapon, a carbine. He fired a perfect shot through the back of Amico's head, but instead of the bullet exiting the front of his skull, it pushed his eyes out of their sockets, leaving them dangling. That is gross. And there is your answer, at least in part, when the Frizzies had dumped Barboza. I should have remembered that story. J.R. wasn't just a hitman in those days. He was handling Jerry Angelo's money for several years at that point, along with the ever-present sidekick, DeCicio. They ran their operation out of the Happy Bar in Maverick Square in East Boston. The rumor was that they had a tremendous amount of money on the streets. When Mike Rocco died, Jerry and Larry Bioni swallowed up the East Boston action, using J.R. and DeCicio to expand their operations there. It's very interesting that DeCicio's name was redacted on all of the 302s from the 60s that we've seen, but JR's name was there clear as day. Leaves more questions than answers. Okay, let's fast forward to January of 1970. We hardly ever fast forward. We need to give our listeners a rest from our minute detail obsession every now and then, you know. True, and since we keep promising we're moving on from the 60s, I'd say that's only fair. Exactly. It would be over a decade before J.R.'s name appeared in the papers again. It was February of 72 when he was arrested on weapons charges. He was described as a loan shark enforcer and a hitman for the mafia. It was revealed during J.R.'s hearing that he, Vinnie Teresa, Doc Sagansky, and Jerry Angelo had testified in front of a grand jury in August of 71. They were subpoenaed as a result of Ted Harrington's strike force investigation into gambling and illegal lending in the Boston area. I assume that we can give thanks to Vinnie Teresa for those subpoenas. And as usual for Vinnie, it was a false lead, but it put a spotlight on JR that wasn't there before. The feds and the ATF had JR under constant surveillance since his grand jury testimony, and they had finally managed to charge him with something. For months, they watched him and Phil Wagenheim thanks to Vinnie's tales. The same month, JR testified an associate of his in Wagenheim, Joseph Navarro, was shot in the hand and head but managed to survive. According to Vinnie, the duo was waiting for someone to try and take them out. Finally, on February 17th, JR was pulled over after leaving a night spot in East Boston. Lo and behold, two handguns were found in the glove box leading to the charges. Attorney Joe Bolero represented JR in court and secured a bail of $2,500 for him. It appears that nothing ever came of the case. Indulge me for a moment. I have to make my one FBI plug. Uh, do I have to? 
You are such a party pooper. Joe Barboza's favorite FBI pen pal, Special Agent Denny Condon, was given an award from the American Legion in January of 72. The same month that JR was facing gun charges, Condon was being honored by the Bunker Hill American Legion. Not quite the Knights of Columbus. You know, I always forget that Condon was a Charlestown native. I wonder if that was part of the reason he and Rico had it in for the McLaughlins. Well, I never thought of that, but it's possible. It makes more sense than Frankie Salemi's version that Georgie said that Rico was sleeping with Hoover and Tolson. Anyhow, the article was great. Denny was named as the bane of Jerry and Julo's existence. And speaking of Jerry, let's move on to the 4th of July that year. As Jerry was cruising around the Boston Harbor that afternoon, a Coast Guard boat approached and the officer signaled and announced that he wanted to board the boat for a safety inspection. The Coast Guard followed Jerry for about three nautical miles to the Dorchester side of the harbor where Jerry was docking at the Chris Craft Marina. When the Coast Guard ship attempted to tie off their boat at the same slip, Jerry approached them and asked, who the hell are you, the chief? Who the hell are you to inspect my boat? The petty officer attempted to pass Jerry, who blocked his way. Jerry told him, walk around me, you son of a bitch. The officer tried to sidestep him when Jerry shoved him and said, don't ever talk to me, you son of a bitch. The officer gathered himself together and proceeded to write up a slew of violations while Jerry stood there staring him down. But it gets better. When the officer handed the citations to him, Jerry crumpled them up, threw them on the dock, and told the coast officer, take that and shove it up your sister's cunt. Do you understand that language? Oh, man, I wish I was there. <laughs> and that landed Jerry in cuffs for assaulting a federal officer. When they read him his rights, Jerry responded, okay, okay, what did I do? But the Coast Guards couldn't handle him, so they had to call for backup. And the closest patrol car was a registry of motor vehicles unit. Man, Jerry was an amazing troll. He was great. Hey, wait for the description of Jerry's outfit. He was wearing a gray see-through shirt, light gray slacks, white cap, and shoes. Like I said, I wish I was there to witness all of it. While they were transporting Jerry, he kept telling them that if he got out of it, he would make their lives miserable. There were no judges available since it was Independence Day, so the Coast Guard attempted to transfer Jerry to the Boston police. But the BPD recognized Jerry on the spot and refused to take him. Plus, Danny Angela was tailing the authorities the whole time. He and his family had been out on his boat and docked next to Jerry when the altercation started. Danny approached one of the officers outside of the police station to inquire about his brother and plead for Jerry's safety. The cops assured Danny that nothing was going to happen to his brother. Come on, in those days, the law was more afraid of Jerry than he was of them. Well, look at what happened. The VPD wouldn't take him, so they had to place a call to the FBI. Special Agent Michael Stewart took custody of Jerry at the Kennedy Building, but the agent was told by the SAC that Judge Wazanski had ordered Jerry's release. But the feds didn't want to make it that easy, so they convinced Wazanski to have a hearing at his home at midnight. Once there, good old Judge Wazanski freed Jerry on personal recognizance, but Jerry had to appear in court the next day. While waiting for his hearing, he was served with a subpoena to appear in front of the Pepper Committee. The FBI 302s were hysterical, really. Endless pages of Jerry cursing. I have a foul mouth, but he'd give me a run for my money any day. The trial didn't begin until May of 1973. Jerry's lawyer, Joe Bolero, told the court that his client used bad language as a matter of ordinary, everyday conversation. 
Just like you. Hey, I admitted my potty mouth tendencies, thank you. The trial didn't get off to a smooth start. They had to bring in a judge from Tacoma to preside over the case. The jury deliberated for eight hours after the judge implored them to reach a unanimous decision. The jury returned with a guilty verdict, but with the caveat that they'd recommend leniency in the sentencing. Jerry did not testify at the very brief trial, but at the sentencing three weeks later, he gave a short speech. I guess Bolero thought it couldn't hurt since Jerry had already been found guilty. Jerry's monologue included him bemoaning his reputation as a high-ranking mafia figure in New England. The sentencing judge, Arthur Garrity, stated, quote, such a sentence is a deterrence in the community. The sentence says no matter how big and famous, he can't get away with it, unquote. And with that, Jerry was fined $2,000 and sentenced to three months in prison with two years probation. Bolero moved for a stay pending appeal and Garrity agreed. Jerry was free once again. In late September of that year, Peter Lamoni's brother, Salvatore, pleaded guilty to jury tampering for Jerry. He allegedly approached a juror and told him to vote not guilty at Jerry's trial, saying my brother would consider it a favor, I would consider it a favor, the brother was another Lamoni, James. The juror had reported it to the judge and was excused from jury service. Lamoni was sentenced to one year in prison the following month. It's interesting because Garrity actually referenced the incident at Jerry's sentencing, saying, quote, sometimes prominent people are volunteered help they don't want. On October 12th, the verdict against Jerry was set aside by the U.S. Court of Appeals, who found that the visiting judge had given the jury improper instructions. A retrial began, but Bolero got the jurisdiction transferred to Concord, New Hampshire, on the grounds that Jerry was too well known in Boston to get a fair trial there. But the transfer didn't change the outcome, and Jerry was found guilty again in late December. But this time, the sentence was reduced to 30 days, though the $2,000 fine stayed the same. Jerry appealed again, arguing that New Hampshire was still too close, but on the last day of May, his appeal was denied. In the meantime, Jerry had more headaches. On January 7, 1974, his office at 95 Prince Street was raided by the feds. He wasn't the only one raided that day. Four cafes in Watertown were also targeted. The Italian American Social Club, William J's, Beef and Bourbon, and Joey's Cafe. For those of you who listened to our most recent Hit Parade episode, you might recall the name Michael Polici. He took over the gambling operation of Paul Foligno after Foligno was killed in early 19. 1972. His home in Waltham and his office in Watertown were raided and documents were seized. Polici himself was arrested, leaving Jerry's office. I have to do just a very short bio on Polici. He was not a local, but originally from Mount Vernon in Westchester, New York, and his name wasn't Polici, but Policio. The New York Policios were tied to Vito Genovese. I wasn't able to find any police record until this pinch when he's in his mid-50s. And honestly, it seems like it was another case of hubris. Polici had tried to bribe a Watertown police lieutenant, but the cop was too honest and went to his boss and then to the feds. They'd strung Polici along for at least a year, with the cop taking the offered bribes, which he then turned over to the feds as evidence. The FBI also installed wiretaps at Polici's home and office, which uncovered some amusing conversations, including Polici and his partner, Charles Savas, gossiping about Jerry and his drama with the Coast Guard. Savas, Jerry go away yet? Polici, no, he don't. Savas, for a month. Polici, he told me last night, he says he don't know whether he's going to take it or not. I was wondering. Savas, why don't he take it and forget about it? The lousy month, he's got to do it. Polici, I don't know. Have you ever spoken with Jerry for any length of time? 
Savas, no, because he yells too much. <laughs> Polici, well, okay, if you say to him, take it. See, you can't make any suggestions to Jerry. Savas, no, I know that. I know that. Jerry's reputation preceded him. Even I was taken aback when I read the later transcripts from the Prince Street wiretap, particularly the way you spoke to his son. Cursing and berating perceived and real enemies is one thing, but your own flesh and blood is another. Anyhow, I want to mention that Savas was a cousin of Billy Aggie. Polici and Savas entered not guilty pleas on January 25th. On May 31st, they were convicted. The trial had begun just two days earlier in front of a jury, but Bolero quickly decided that it was a bad idea and had the jury dismissed. The government star witness this time wasn't another criminal, but the cop that Polici had tried to bribe. There's no sense eating beans when you could be eating steak. We know you have six kids. We can make a lot of money working together, Polici told him. Well, the way the media played up the honest Irish cop, Bolero probably figured Polici didn't stand a chance and a jury would have thrown away the key. The cop, Edward Vaughn, testified that Polici had bragged to him that Jerry had placed him in charge of gambling and loan sharking in Waltham, Watertown, and Newton. He named Polici's agents in Watertown as Joseph Marullo, James Chiomo, Paul Antonucci, and Joseph Kusik. When Marullo was arrested, Polici asked Vaughn to fix it and get the charges reduced. Vaughn promised to do what he could, but didn't. He said he was surprised when Polici appeared in court alongside Marullo. When Vaughn asked him why, Polici answered, I'm here to pay the fine. I'm in charge of giving protection in this area, and when someone is arrested, I have to pay the fine. Marullo was fined $3,000, Savas was angry, and Polici asked Vaughn what had happened. The cop lied and said he got a bad judge. Sometime later, another one of Savas's guys was pinched. This time, Vaughn got him released so his cover wouldn't be blown. Vaughn also claimed he gave Polici information about his competition, including their receipts. After looking over Charles Tastian's books and seeing the $250,000 he had bought in, Polici remarked, next year this will be ours. Well, there'll be more to come about Charles Tashian after the first of the year. At one point, Vaughn testified that he told Polici that he was worried about their deal, but Polici dismissed his fears, stating, don't worry, I've been dealing with the police all my life. Thanks to the investigation and the case against Polici, a member of the Watertown Redevelopment Authority, Robert Chivor, was arrested in March of 74 and charged with perjury. In June, Vaughn spoke to the press about the year-long sting and their efforts to shut down illegal gambling operations in Watertown. On June 4th, Harrington and his strike force opposed bail being granted for Polici. Then just 11 days later, after he was convicted, he was sentenced to five years in Atlanta and fined $20,000. Later that same month, Slim Cazonis was back in court facing contempt charges. In April, he had refused to answer questions in front of a grand jury on the grounds that he couldn't afford a lawyer. When an attorney was appointed for him, Cazonis came back with the excuse that he couldn't understand the questions he was being asked. The judge ordered that he be given the questions in written form, but then Cazonis came back again saying he wanted a new lawyer because he could now afford to pay one of his own. The judge finally told Cazonis to come back the following month, ready to answer or face contempt charges. The crazy thing about it was that he'd already been granted immunity from prosecution. Hey, he was dragging it out successfully. Cazonis was arrested on loan sharking charges in late August, along with Paul Sarxion and Joe Patrizzi. With Polici in prison, Patrizzi had taken over, and Cazonis was put in charge of ensuring that Polici's people continue to pay on time. 
Cazonis approached one of Polici's protectees and told him the amount he needed to pay was being jacked up to $100 a week from the previous 70 that he was kicking up because Polici needed to take care of be needed to be taken care of in prison. Unfortunately for Cazonis, the man who had taken a $1,500 loan from Polici two years earlier felt safe enough to go to the feds now that Polici was locked up. The feds wired him up and gave him money, which was marked with fluorescent powder that adhered to Cazonis's hands and the left pocket of his pants. He then passed the bills to Sarxion as the feds watched. Fluorescent powder, like they were in a spy novel or something. That same month, Cazonis's home in Bilreka was Bilreka. also raided. Bilreka. That property the government alleged was mortgaged by the Angulo brothers through Huntington Realty Trust. But in September 5th, Cazonis and the others entered innocent pleas. Represented by Joe Bolero, they were released on their own recognizance. The judge warned the men about having the same attorney and told them that they'd need to sign a waiver, agreeing that it was okay for Bolero to represent all of them, which they did. You know, I had to stick the Bill Ricca thing in there because somebody will write it and say, he said it wrong. In November, Polici and his wife, Regina, were charged with loan sharking, tax evasion, and filing false tax returns. Despite the fact that Mrs. Polici was facing what Jeremiah O'Sullivan claimed were hundreds of years in prison, the judge released her on a $10,000 bond. Joe Bolero represented her at the hearing, but stated he would not be her attorney at trial. Jerry and his brother Danny were listed as co-conspirators, but not defendants. It appears that nothing ever came of those charges. Their front company in Waltham was quietly dissolved after Polici was released from prison, and they both passed away from old age in Waltham in the 1980s. Now, back to the Angelos. In the summer of 75, Mike, Danny, and Frank all applied to the BPD for permits to keep guns in their homes, but they all used the address at 95 Prince Street on their applications, which gave the authorities an excuse to deny their requests since all the men lived in Medford. Frank Angelo appealed the decision, claiming that he did live in a second-floor unit at 95 Prince Street. The judge ordered the BPD attorney and Frank's lawyer to submit briefs on the legal definition of the word residence. The following month, Cazonis was found guilty in federal court on two counts of loan sharking. As a result, the other four men pleaded out with Patrizzi getting the harshest sentence of five years in prison, and all of them were fined $10,000. Just a few days later, Cazonis was sentenced to eight years in prison and slapped with a $20,000 fine, but he was freed pending appeal. Nick Angelo had been in court nearly every day watching the proceedings. At the sentencing, which Nick also attended, Joe Bolero argued that in his heart, Cazonis meant no harm. If it was a threat, it was a meek and mild one, he continued. Cazonis declared that he was innocent of the charges and reminded his audience that he had been wrongly convicted in December 1965 bank robbery. That sentence was vacated in early 1970 after a higher court ruled that the government had falsified the evidence against Cazonis. After the sentence was delivered, the prosecution complained that Cazonis was ungrateful for the favor the government had done him by vacating his earlier sentence, quote, and in return, he badmouthed us in court, unquote. In arguing for a harsher sentence, the prosecutor submitted an affidavit from the FBI purporting to show that Cazonis and Patrizzi were still operating a gambling operation in Revere and taking protection money for Jerry even while they were out on bail. The FBI report also claimed that two different informants had witnessed Cazonis and the Angelo brothers having business meetings where gambling and loan sharking policy decisions were made. Well, you have to assume that at least one of those informants was the wiretap at Jerry's. Maybe the other was Al Horrigan. 
Okay, enough of the North End. Let's move back to California in late 1975. I have a question that we did not address in the last episode. Shoot. Well, we referenced a newspaper article from November of 75 that clearly stated that JR was gunning for Barboza. That was three months before Barboza was killed. But did everyone back home know that JR was the hitman, or did it not come out until Larry Bioni was bragging on the wiretap? I was seven when all of that went down. And like I mentioned last week, it is all anyone talked about for months. So to answer your question, many believed it would be J.R. who would take out Barboza and believed it was him after Barboza was hit. Obviously, hearsay wasn't enough to bring charges against J.R., but I also think the authorities were glad to have ridded themselves of Barboza. Well, there's no question about that. It's also interesting that there was no byline on that article. Whoever wrote it didn't want J.R. or Barboza coming after them, I guess. It wasn't that odd in those days for no name to be listed on articles, but in this instance, you're probably right that the author wished to remain unknown. Well, one more mafia trivia question for you. Why were J.R. and DeCicio called the Gold Dust Twins? There was a cleaning product back in the day that was supposed to be the best and could clean up anything. The Gold Dust Twins label was slapped on people who were the best in their field. DeCicio and J.R. were evidently the best hit team in those days. Whatever went down with DeCicio in October of 1975, when his days came to an end and J.R. was a solo act after that, we will never know. There's the famous quote from Larry Bioni from the wiretaps about J.R., quote, he's a genius with a fucking carbine, unquote, referring to J.R. taking out Joe Barboza. J.R.'s other virtue was obviously patience. He tracked down Barboza in San Francisco, and on February 11th, their paths crossed, leaving Barboza dead in the street outside of Chalmers' apartment. As we mentioned in the previous episode, he had moved out of Chalmers' apartment and was living some 30 blocks away from him, but was still a regular visitor. Barboza was parked about half a block from the apartment, and as he approached his vehicle, a white van pulled alongside him. The side door opened, and JR opened fire. Barboza went right down, never having a chance to draw the 38 that he was carrying. With a supposed half a million dollar bounty on his head, everyone said his days were numbered. I want to make clear there was never any chatter that JR received any monetary compensation for the hit. We don't know for sure, but the following year in 1977, there was an induction ceremony that we believe JR was straightened out in. A bit of irony that a later ceremony in 1989 would be JR's undoing. Well, don't let's get too far ahead. We'll be getting to the 77 ceremony after our holiday break and the 89 ceremony at the end of the season. We are taking a few weeks off for the holidays, and we'll give more details about that next week. And next week, we're going to be back with our favorite topic, bank and armored truck robberies. Well, hope you listen in again. Bye. Bye.